You're listening to The Bob Sadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. Thank you so much for listening uh, this Sunday morning. We are this morning and always the show of ideas, never once, not ever, the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening. Interesting how the mind works. The pandemic virus uh, caused me and the rest of the country to, uh, after observing how the virus profoundly affected our large, great cities, New York, Chicago, Seattle, and the like, the cities took the brunt of the adverse economic and social and health effects of the virus. And that resulted in lots of workers working from home, Um, And then lots of feedback uh, as the media and pundits started to look under the hood of what working from home meant to the workers, to the employers, and to the cities where the workers were no longer going in order to earn a living. And that immediately led to a more serious inquiry into the concept of cities. What is what does the virus tell us about cities? Did the has the virus forced upon us a profound change in something we have taken for granted for oh so long in terms of our relationship to where we live and where we work? Has the virus forced us to make decisions? that ultimately we will be thankful for and would not have made absent the virus, will the results of the virus, putting aside the health effects, will the long-term effects of the virus on city life be positive, negative, or will they just disappear and will go back to the somewhat good old days of working and living in the same place. Thus, this morning's inquiry is into cities. What they are, do we need them? Is this the end of city life, to paraphrase Bill Clinton? Is this the end of city life as we know it or not? I'm delighted to welcome to the show this morning uh, Brent Orell. Brent is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he has worked in the Bush administration. He has been in the legis- involved in the legislative and executive branch of our government for some time. He has studied work in America for most of his life. He is the host of a wonderful blog uh, that a podcast that I recommend to you called Hardly Working. Uh, Brent has studied this issue, has written thoughtfully on the future of cities, and who better to help us sort through this issue than Brent Durrell. Brent, welcome to the show this morning. Hi, Bob. It's great being with you. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Brent, we are, we, we are talking about cities. Now, let's start with some basics. A city, what is a city? Is it simply a geographic, geographic boundary with a form of government um, and a police force? Is it a place where any place where a whole lot of people work, does that make it a city? What are the characteristics of what a city is? In other words, what makes a city a city? Well, thanks uh, for that question. And I think that that's a really important starting point for this conversation uh, when we think about the impact of the coronavirus on the future of cities to ask, what is it? What is What are we talking about when we talk about a city? And I kind of think of it in four related domains. Um, first, cities are social. <clears throat> Pardon me. Cities are social. Uh, human beings are really built to develop and live within communities. 
Uh, this nature is quite literally encoded in our DNA. Cities um, are just the human instinct for community expressed on a massive scale. The second uh, characteristic is that, in my mind at least, cities are like circuses. Um, each city has thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of performances that are being enacted simultaneously. The whole project works not because it's planned, but because it's the product of an, of an uncountable number of individual actions that kind of spontaneously emerge into order. Uh, the urban systems that we see, government, police, transit, education, health, they don't create cities. Um, they are created in response to and as part of this spontaneous order. The third thing is that cities are self-compounding. And what I mean by that is that they build upon themselves. They create and they depend upon density. Um, and they grow more complex and productive over time. Right now, the largest 300 cities in the world account for about 50% of global GDP. Americans who live in large urban areas are 50% more productive than those who live in smaller metro areas. This is what happens when you pull together a bunch of smart, ambitious hustlers and get them to both cooperate with one another and compete with one another. They innovate, they build, and they produce. And then finally, cities are both delicate and resilient. Their scale, their complexity, their dynamism means that cities are easily disrupted by catastrophe. But it's very rare to find an example of a city that has failed and disappeared. Disasters tend to drive adaptations and circumstances rather than the abandonment of the settlement itself. Cities tend to emerge stronger after, after disasters than they were before. So those are kind of the, the, the four big buckets of ideas that I think about when I think about cities. Um, and I think that that gives us a sense for both um, why they are so important to us and um, how they can, um, how they shape us, how we shape them, and how dependent we are on them. And ultimately, I think that that is a reason for hope for cities um, that they will, um, that they, they'll stay with us, they'll evolve, um, but they aren't going to disappear. So cities, cities are good. Okay. So we'll, st- we'll st- for lots of reasons, um, we'll start with that as a premise because everything you you described is a positive good. The circus aspects, the social aspects, and circus is not a pejorative; it's a positive. Uh, the social aspects, uh, the fact that they in they organically grow because they are a positive experience um, and they are they produce a very productive workforce so we start with that premise then why couldn't and, and or just, shouldn't and just to clarify a, yeah just to clarify for a second bob cities are us right they exist because we exist they are an outgrowth of our nature we have to be together and that's why they that's why cities and urban areas exist then if we start with that premise why isn't it a governmental policy, and let's say a national governmental policy, uh, and policy is very soft, uh, to so to build or encourage or create more cities? From what you say, the more cities you have, the better the collective economic, social, uh, entertainment um, intellectual life is. So therefore, if cities are good, uh, can there be a governmental policy that just makes more cities? After all, uh, or are cities created somehow like a seed is dropped into the earth and some take root and others do not? Um, To what extent, if they are good, can we create more of them? How does a city get created, a new city? Yeah, I, uh, I I think that uh, the idea that um, 
that stands behind your question is this idea that somebody is in charge of cities, of the creation of cities um, and of their development and their management. Uh, cities are um, uh, take root on their own. I think the plant analogy that you just used, the idea of a seed, take root for their own reasons, uh, not because somebody says, well, we, we, you know, we're going to have a city here because I say so. It's, it's because, for instance, in the case of New York, uh, it was the natural attributes of uh, that area of the, of the North American coastline that made it the logical place, the most advantageous place for settlement to begin. And the natural uh, assets and resources um, in that area then fed its development. Uh, and as I said, cities are self-compounding, so they, they tend to grow um, over time and become more complex and more productive as they go along. So I, uh, government can recognize um, cities and does recognize cities. Uh, say the federal government, but planned cities don't actually seem to work out all that well. When you think of planned urban communities, you don't um, usually uh, arrive at a positive image. What you arrive at is something like Cabrini Green or, you know, a some massive um, complex. I mean, the, the Soviet social planners um, planted. Uh, tried to plant cities all over uh, the Soviet Union and Russia, and they're mostly not very attractive, and mostly people don't want to live there. Uh, they want to be in those organically sprouted cities um, where uh, the, the texture and the vibrancy and the life uh, that cities create is, is, is natural uh, and, uh, again, grows out of this basic instinct that human beings have to be together. So, so cities... Or have to be organic. They cannot, as you just pointed out, they cannot be planned. Now, our large, um, when we do the mind game ourselves and think of a city, we think generally of high-rise buildings, lots of workers. We think of commuting to work. Um, And we think of the word always pops up very early of density. So is it... Is, does a city require density? It seems like uh, in the characteristics you describe, they almost can't exist without density. What is the relationship of density to uh, a vibrant city? Are the two go hand in hand and you cannot have one without the other? Yeah, I think they are, they're really synonymous. Uh, and, as I said in my kind of my opening framing remarks, uh, cities both um, create density and then depend on that density. Uh, if that density is, uh, it, you can't create a city out of nothing. Uh, you um, again, it, it relies on kind of its natural, the natural attributes of whatever the geographic location is. That's why cities form around uh, where rivers come together and where, uh, you know, uh, mountain passes are and where um, uh, ports uh, and coastlines um, are amenable to trade. Uh, it's because they have these natural, uh, natural assets that tend to draw people to them. That magnetic quality um, that we see in cities is what creates the density. Um, and that density... Uh, is then, um, it, it, in a sense, kind of depends on itself, right? So that if there's a sudden drop, say, in density and population, um, the city can't continue to function um, very well. Uh, it, it's an intricate web of interdependent um, people, organizations, um, businesses, that are, um, whether they know it or not, and oftentimes they don't know it, they're cooperating with one another to create a functioning urban environment. So you start pulling out uh, the the pieces um, or closing down the pieces of the city, and pretty soon the city itself is unable to function. Now, Now we have cities are clearly 
places where lots and lots and lots of people work, office workers. Um, and office, I don't mean uh, doing bureaucratic tasks. Think Silicon Valley with all the creativity. Think of, of the in the, not just Silicon Valley, the location, but the tech industry. Highly creative, highly innovative, uh, very collaborative. Uh, that almost requires uh, human density, and it seems to require physical proximity. So we start with with the fact that many workers uh, simply work in offices because that's where it's always been. Some work collaboratively, that is in person, in close proximity, because that's part of the process itself. Now, focusing on the former, the virus has forced us to experience, uh, it was force-fed, experience the whole concept of working from home which means severing the relationship between where you live and where you work to some degree. Does that open somewhat of a Pandora's box, although that suggests a negative, and I don't mean that working from home is a negative. It is simply new and different for many of us. But looking into the future and the one of the great joys of of podcasting as you know Brent is you get to voice an opinion you're not stating a fact you can speculate and voice an opinion and so long as you share with us the basis of your opinion your opinion has great weight and great validity so help us understand how you see the effect of working from home people discovering hey, this is pretty pleasant, and hey, this can be done, and I am as or more productive. Uh, it is cheaper for the employer. So it's working from home where it works seems to be win-win for the employer and the employee. Tell us what you see as the possibility, if not the probability, uh, that that will profoundly affect cities and your observation of what cities will be like in the future. So I, I think it's really important to note at the outset of this part of the conversation that uh, COVID did not create telecommuting. Um, telecommuting was a rising trend uh, in, uh, in American business life, um, economic life, uh, for you know the last 10, 15 years, and and what what COVID has done, it has it has provided a, an accelerant um, to drive that change much faster and to open up possibilities for people, um, uh, many more people than um, we would have thought of before. And I think that that goes to a couple issues that employers have long had with telecommuting. There's been, I think, a suspicion of it. Uh, I remember reading one time on Twitter or Facebook or someplace like that, that, you know, if you're working at home, you're not working. Um, and I think uh, that that really expressed the concern of employers that one of the reasons they want people in the office is that they can keep an eye on them and they can make sure that people are being productive. And I think what we're finding uh, in, in the midst of this crisis is that people can be as or more productive uh, working from home. And, and, uh, and that is going to be a big factor uh, in uh, employers' minds moving forward, I think, um, especially for those kinds of tasks that don't require daily uh, face-to-face interaction with either other Coworkers or clients. Now, there's some there's some complexity underneath that. Um, uh, it's very difficult to build a corporate culture if people aren't actually working in the same place. And uh, acclimating there's a difference between acclimating new employees and working with the ones that you already have. The ones you already have know what the business is about. They know the values and priorities of the business. And they operate accordingly. New people, uh, and uh, especially younger workers coming into the system, they haven't had the benefit of that experience of that close interpersonal contact 
um, uh, that that we get out of um, uh, you know working in the same location. So uh, I, I think that's that's one factor. I think the second factor, though, and this is what I think is really going to drive some change um, in uh, in the degree to which we move. Uh, and stay with, you know, with telecommuting, move into it and stay with it, are, are the economics of it. Um, the, the, there are three major banks, this is just a for instance, but there are three major banks operating in, uh, in Manhattan, uh, uh, Barclays, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, and one other, it's slipping my memory, just at the, uh, at the moment. Um, but City. these these businesses these businesses in total employ twenty thousand people that are coming that were coming into the city every single day. Um, those twenty thousand people have to be put into office space, which amounts to about ten million square feet of office space of some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Um, I think that employers are going to say, "Look, I can get better productivity." Out of my staff, I can reduce risk um, to those staff, their health and well-being, and I can cut back on the costs associated with operating those offices. I think those are enormous incentives, economic incentives, for businesses to support and sustain the move to telecommuting. And I think that uh, as that happens, the removal of those um, you know, uh, some of those employees from the central business districts has huge implications for all of the smaller businesses that operate underneath those businesses to support their operations. So the the potential kind of downstream effects of um, telecommuting are really, really significant, I think, for the life and health of cities. You know, there's there's an interesting, um, this is, of course, uh, a libertarian uh podcast and live radio show. So, of course, libertarianism and individual freedom and responsibility are never far from the topic of the day. And what occurred to me is, um, and I would like your comments because I'm going to venture into the psychology of work uh, and the relationship between the worker and the employer, an area where you have enormous expertise. But it would seem to me that a worker working from home outside of the uh, direct control of the employer, you mentioned employers were skeptical, they have to keep an eye, or they feel they have to keep an eye on employees, etc. You quoted that social media thought that you read uh, somewhere, and of course, we all have read the same thing. So my question is this, or my observation is, could, wouldn't you say that to some degree, you can comment on how much, working at home gives an employer now the sense that they are independent. They are kind of an entrepreneur in a way, or more of an entrepreneur and less of a an employee. They sort of dictate uh, exactly when they work to some degree. They have control over the environment. They certainly have control over whether the shirt they're wearing at work has a food stain and stuff like that. So isn't there kind of a freeing to the worker aspect uh, to the relationship with the job, and isn't that healthy for the employer and the employee? After all, productivity can be objectively measured, so there, there should not be a loss of productivity. Isn't it at that level, at the psychological level, at the freedom level, isn't it a gain for both the employer and the employee, or am I just over-engrandizing uh, that? So uh, I'm, I'm really of two minds. Obviously, um, at uh, you know, at one level, you're you're probably right. Uh, you know, there's the stories uh, that have emerged um, during the lockdowns of court proceedings that are occurring, um, you know, uh, virtually with you know the judge, on, the judge and the lawyers, you know, all on camera, and um, judges getting kind of. Uh, irked at the fact that these uh, attorneys are sometimes um, 
laying in bed or haven't quite fully dressed for the day. Uh, and, and so that there is that, uh, that, that, uh, potential kind of erosion of kind of work, work standards, you know, standards of, of deportment. I think that employers like, uh, that help bring order, um, to, um, to a working situation. Um, so, uh, obviously, uh, there, there are some, you know, We've already moved a year in California, so you know that's better than I do. For a long time, we've moved away from less formal working arrangements and working behaviors. Uh, Men no longer routinely wear neckties. You know, those kinds of. um, Brent, men no longer. Brent, if I may interrupt, men no longer own neckties. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, so. so, so that, again, this is an aspect of it. You will see some, I think, some acceleration of those kind of, the, uh, of informality in work. Um, at another level, though, I think that it's problematic, um, and it goes back to what I said at the at the very top of our conversation, which is that um, cities are social, right? Well, why are they social? Why do human beings need to be together? Uh, and that's because that's how we develop um, as human beings. Um, we, at an individual level, while we're um, while we have high regard for the sort of the independence of the individual and their uniqueness, we also recognize that human beings require other human beings uh, in order to become fully human. And so, this um, uh, it's it's uh, it's not. It's not just um, – this is what I – in my own study of libertarian thought, I think there's kind of a false libertarianism, kind of an Anne Randian version of libertarianism that doesn't adequately account for um, the, the inherently social nature of human beings and, and why we need to be together. Well, I, I would uh, – I don't deny at all the social aspects, but the question is – why can't humans, and we're going to go to break on this note, uh, so you, you'll have 30 seconds to reflect upon your answer. Why can't humans get their social life from where they live, and, their, uh, and why do they have to get it from their work life? Why can't there simply be a separation between those parts of the human experience that you get from your home and those parts that you get from work. Uh, The two don't have to be linked. Um, This is Bob Zadek. I'm speaking with Brent Orell. We are discussing the future of cities. Uh, uh, The paraphrase, the short title is, Has the Coronavirus Made Cities Toast? Um, Are we finished with cities? Are cities essential for a life? Of course they are, but to what degree? We'll explore the possible political, economic, and profound social effects upon life in America if more and more workers stop living where they work. There is a break between the two. What will happen to political, economic, and social life in America? It is a fascinating exploration. More to follow in 30 short seconds. Please stay tuned. I'm Bob Zadig, broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. Book now available at bobzadek.com. 
Welcome back to the Bob Zadig Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. This morning we are speaking with Brent Arell. Uh, Brent uh, is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a wonderful D.C.-based think tank, an organization that provides lots of written and uh, podcast thoughtful commentary on economic and social and political issues. Uh, Brent is a resident fellow there, and important for this morning's show, uh, Brent broadcast a podcast, hardly working, uh, a must-listen to if you at all interested in your relationship to work on every American's relationship to work in America. Brent, we are talking about the future of cities. Now, uh, Brent, you have described cities in the opening as having four, or great cities, four essential characteristics. Um, they are important to social life. Uh, we don't mean we, we mean something far more than dating. We mean the entire experience of humans interacting with one another. You analogized uh, cities to a circus. Lots of stuff going on uh, all over the place. All very stimulating and makes life good for all. You have described cities as being self-compounding. They internally grow. All of the positive qualities of cities uh, invite more people to want to be part of the action, and therefore they internally grow just because they are cities. Um, and you also have pointed out that cities have the somewhat contradictory characteristics of they are delicate, the virus shows that, and many other, uh, perhaps hurricanes as well, uh, but notwithstanding the the fact that they are delicate, they are also resilient. And those are wonderful, uh, that's a wonderful summary, Brent, that you gave us on what makes a city a city. Now, with that background, I uh, there's no doubt that even though the cities offer those positive qualities, there are many workers in cities who commute. They are forced to commute because that's where the job is. So they, let's just take the metropolitan area of New York City where I grew up and where I spent half my life. There are lots of folks who live in the suburbs, leafy, uh, manicured lawns, uh, townhouses, and the like, because they like that environment and they like the social life of living in the suburbs. And why do they commute? Because that's where the jobs are. But they certainly don't choose to live in the city. They choose to use the city for one aspect of their life, provide income, and the suburbs for their social life and for the quality of life the suburbs provide. Now, once we start more telecommuting um, and working in, i.e. working from home, now people get to pick where they want to live, the suburbs they are no longer have to commute. So the the city remains the circus and the place for entertainment and culture, but not a place to live. Um, isn't that simply a furtherance of what you have said? And as people no longer have to commute, because that's the only difference, what happens to the cities? So I, you know, it's all speculation, right? Uh, so that's what we're here to do. We're here to speculate of course. on, of course, um, on, uh, on on what the future might hold. Um, uh, so I, what I, what I, what I see as the, uh, and maybe we should restrict our our speculation to kind of what's the immediate look like? What's the next two to five years look like? Um, in the wake of the coronavirus in the, uh, for cities. So cities are going to have to be reconfigured. Um, that's one thing. Uh, you know, I, I talked earlier about uh, how some of the banks are thinking about their staff in the city. Um, some of them are arguing, no, 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 we're going to maintain the same uh, sort of physical footprint because we're going to have to still have people there, but we're going to have to create more space inside our offices uh, to, um, you know, sort of 
uh, protect against infection in the workplace. Um, so that they're saying we're not we're not going to shrink our footprint. Um, that's only true if you think of the footprint as just being buildings and and square footage. Um, what I'm thinking of is the human footprint, uh, the number of people um, that could potentially find themselves no longer coming in on a daily basis um, or coming in at all um, and just working uh, working from home using Zoom, using Workplace, using all of these new platforms that we have. Um, uh, maybe maybe we get better technology. I think that that's almost certainty in terms of um, telecommunications technology that will increasingly make us feel like we're able to be present with one another, even though uh, it's a, a hologram of us rather than our physical bodies. There's all sorts of things on, on the horizon that we can't see, but I, I do think in the short term, uh, there's going to be a lot of reconfiguring of, um, of urban life to make it safer, not to make it safe because you can't make it safe uh, in, in a complete and ultimate sense, but you can make it safer. And that means more distance and fewer people um, in the cities. I just don't see in that scenario in the next um, two to five years how that doesn't have a significant impact on the way that, um, that, the way that cities operate. Fewer people means less economic activity, not inside those corporate headquarters necessarily, but for all the businesses that surround them. Uh, that means lower employment um, for people who, um, you know, taking New York as an, as an example, people who live in, in Queens or they live in Brooklyn or the Bronx or wherever, uh, and they're and and. They're dependent upon the jobs that are created, the, the secondary job effects um, that are created by these larger operations in central business districts. So, uh, so that's that's one effect. There's an employment effect. There's, I think, there could be a significant revenue effect for the city of New York um, as tax bases um, are under pressure uh, from lower density um, in in the cities. Uh, as well as things like income tax and um, and sales taxes, people do more of their business and live more of their lives outside the cities. If you reduce the city's tax base, uh, and you, again, using New York City as an example, it's an $85 billion budget. About uh, $10 billion of that a year is commercial real estate taxes. Um, if you If you figure maybe they lose a third of that, that puts a lot of pressure on city services, on schools, libraries, police forces, fire, you know, all of the all of the infrastructure and amenities uh, that that help to make urban life sustainable and attractive. Um, so you you could wind up in kind of a vicious downward spiral um, at least for a while as as cities go through this reconfiguration. Uh, and become less dense. Now you use you use the phrase "vicious downward cycle." Uh, I I would not use the word "vicious." I agree. Uh, you and I 100% agree on what you have just said. However, I see as my imagination takes off, I see profound effects upon not just the New York and other major metropolitan areas, but on the country. And taking what you have just said, Brent, and extending it just a tiny bit, once the link between where you live and where you work, once that link is to some degree severed, now you no longer have to live in using, again, the metropolitan area of New York City. You no longer have to look for a home as close to New York City as possible to shorten the commute. You now can live anywhere. There's nothing different between New Jersey, if you're working in New York, or if your office used to be in New York. New Jersey and Boise, Idaho are the same. So now humans are free to live wherever they want. I did a show a couple of weeks ago, Voting With Your Feet with Ilya Soman. Now people can really pick where they want to live without any regard to where they work. That is freeing. We like freedom. And then 
Brent, I'll add one more component. As people no longer work and live in the same place, as you pointed out, the economic base declines, which means both population and economic power decline in the cities, which means it increases in the rest of the country, thereby spreading more evenly economic and voting power and diluting the intense economic and voting power of the major metropolitan areas. One more comment, and then I'd like to hear from you how off I am. Once that happens, then the power of the public service unions, which derive their power from large cities, that power is diluted, which means pressures on pensions decline, pressures on city budgets decline, and political power of the teachers' union, the transport workers' union, the prison guards' union, the policemen's union, very much in the news, the power of all those large public service national unions declines, which means power gets dispersed throughout the country. And the country becomes, complements of the virus, more small-d democratic with power spread throughout the country. In short, I find the virus is a gift from God in the long run in terms of economic and political power being dispersed in the country. That's my overly rosy, taking great liberties view of what might happen to cities as a result of the virus. You are free now to rain on my parade. <laughs> Well, that's a, it, it, it's a compelling, uh, I think, analysis of a potential future. Um, uh, and it's, I would say you've got the weight of history behind you. Uh, uh, when we talk about, you know, there's some people, uh, who, you know, who will argue, you know, cities, cities will, you know, they'll always be there. And, you know, this is uh, a lot of fear mongering and, you know, uh, crisis mongering. Uh, uh, but the reality is this has been the process the, the, what you just described has been the process that we've been going through in the United States uh, ever since the end of the Second World War. Uh, the suburbanization of American life um, has uh, continued apace, um, you know, uh, and uh, there's, I think, very little uh, that could or should uh, reverse that. I mean, I share your your estimation uh, and your uh, you know your strong preference for people to be free to choose um, where they live, and and that we shouldn't be mandating or coercing or you know telling people that they that their desire to live in a cabin in Idaho is somehow wrong. I don't think it is wrong. I think uh, people uh, people need to be free. Uh, that's what what makes uh, America what it is. Um, so, what I would temper the comments with uh, is that um, first cities have traditionally uh, formed a really vital function in terms of pulling together um, disparate people from disparate backgrounds and disparate skill sets um, that that help have helped to drive innovation. Now we may in fact be able to do that better and better um, without being physically proximate to one another. But uh, I tend to believe that there's something very special and important about face-to-face communication. Um, that since 90% of human communication uh, isn't verbal, uh, it's nonverbal, uh, and just because we don't, we aren't uh, thinking about it, doesn't mean that it isn't happening all the time. When it, and it, you know, and, and just looking at uh, business uh, community, but you could apply this to education and other fields as well. That education and uh, and uh, business activity aren't just matter uh, a matter of transferring information from one person to another. They are, in fact, uh, about deeper levels of communication that occur and kind of bring 
our thoughts into life. Um, so that's one uh, one sort of pushback I would have is that I don't think we can virtualize everything, uh, when even even in business. And I and I take your earlier point that you know maybe people would be better off if they didn't get derive so much of their social life from their work. I I, I do agree with that, uh, but. Uh, there are other factors at play here that I think we have to pay attention to, and one of them is not everybody can move. And that's the that's one of the points I was making in uh, the Law and Liberty piece that you picked up on uh, about pandemics, um, elites, and society, is that elites always have the option to opt out uh, of uh, a bad situation, and they generally exercise that option. Um uh, middle and lower uh, uh, income groups do not have that option. Um, and when the city goes um, to pot, uh, it, the the worst effects of that are going to be felt by the most vulnerable people, and could uh, you know drive a lot of very unfortunate um, kinds of outcomes um, for them and for the and for the broader society. So it's not. Um, by, change, by changing one thing, you change a whole bunch of other things, and you can't even see the second-order effects uh, of what you're changing. So uh, it's going to happen. I agree. It's going to happen. But, and, and some of the effects will be really, really positive for many, many people, and some of it's going to be quite bad um, for other people. I agree with you that there's no doubt that certain occupations, certain professions require interaction face-to-face time, particularly to the extent that creativity is involved. The results of collaboration cannot be replicated by telephone calls and the like and and Zoom meetings and stuff like that. There's no question. But the point is what the virus is accelerating, what the virus is providing the Petri dish for is people where it works, severing the mandated connection between where you live and where you work. That means you, the, the two, do, one doesn't force the other decision. You pick where you want to live and what social life you will have, where you're going to live. You are free to do that. And that has nothing to do with where you work. Indeed, the concept of where you work disappears. You don't work anywhere. You work for somebody. You add value to some enterprise by your brain and your skill and your labors, you add value and you're paid for that, but the value can be added from anywhere where it works. And there's no doubt in my mind that this will provide enormous freedom that doesn't now exist among uh, workers who right now had to live in one place, maybe where they didn't want to live, simply because the job was there. And the virus will now make the job be where you are, not where the head office or regional office of your employer is. That was my only point. And then once we understand that link is broken, that opens up all kinds of, as you said, quoting Milton Friedman, freedom to choose. You now are free to choose where you live and how you live and where you can afford to live and you are, that's not imposed upon you. And that to me gives me goosebumps, compliments of the virus. And the cities, by the way, will always provide cultural base and social base and the circus aspects and collaboration where needed. But the choice will be yours. And so the, the message to me is it is freeing. The virus will free us from the link between where we live and where we work. I, I largely agree with what you're saying. Uh, uh, and I, it, we have to separate kind of the, the normative discussion of what should be with what actually is and will be. Um, 
you know, I have a deep concern for those who may be left behind in this nirvana that you've described. Uh, and I think we've seen some of the, um, the effects of that in the last several years in our politics of what happens to communities that end up being radicalized by these kind of abrupt social and economic shifts um, that, that we're experiencing. Um, so uh, not saying whether it should or it shouldn't happen, it is happening. It will happen. There will be a lot of benefits to it, and there will also be some costs. Uh, and I and we just need to um, be ready to you know accept and experience those costs and and decide what we're going to do about them. Uh, if, and if to welcome it. Them. Now, Brent, we have only well, a minute again, left. Tell us about. Yeah, I'm sorry. But tell us about your podcast. Um, hardly working. We have about a minute left. Help our friends to understand what they will learn from becoming addicted to your podcast, as I am. <laughs> well, thank you, Bob. That's really kind from somebody who's been in this work for so long. Uh, and I'm, I'm a total novice. So uh, my work at AEI falls under the heading of vocational career and work. Uh, and that gives me a pretty broad mandate to look at a wide variety of topics that touch on um, both uh, the, the the tangible aspects of work. What kind of job do you want? How do you? We have thirty job? seconds, Brent. Friends? Just give us the yeah. Brent. We have thirty seconds. Just okay, give us the I'm, link I'm, I'm, to I'm, hardly working. Okay, uh, you find it on the AEI website, uh, AEI.org. Look under multimedia. All of our all of our podcasts are listed there. There are a number of excellent ones. So I hope that some of your... It's uh, addictive. Your, it, it's addictive, and I hope all our friends out there love it as much as I do. Thanks a lot, Brent, for your time this hour, this Sunday morning, and thanks to my friends out there for joining us. I'll be back again next Sunday. Have a good rest of the weekend. Thank you. 